Lord, thank you that we're able to gather here freely every Saturday night where we're able to come and sing your praises, where we're able to talk to you, Lord, where we're able to hear about all the awesome things that you've done for us. And pray now as just we come to open your word that you would speak to us through it. You'd take away whatever I have to say, whatever my whatever my thoughts are, Lord, and we would only hear your voice. Pray that by your Holy Spirit you would you would speak into our hearts. Amen. So I'm sure that this has happened to all of us at least once at some point in our life. You've been out with your mates for lunch, you've been playing football, you've been going shopping, whatever, and just for some reason you've had your phone on silent in your pocket, in your handbag, whatever, and you've forgotten about it. You are having a great time. You think life is pretty sweet right now and, and all is well. But unknown to you, it really is not. You go to your phone to check the time, to see if a certain someone has replied to your Snapchat, or, or just to check how lit the group chat has been in your absence, and all of a sudden, terror comes over you. A chill runs down your spine and you start to feel a wee bit sick. Because when you open your phone, you see this. There we go. Right? When you thought life couldn't be any better, it's actually about to come to an untimely end. Maybe you're like me and you start to think of all the things that you did or didn't do. Did I forget to take the chicken out of the freezer? Did I leave the bins out? Did I forget to hang out the washing? Did I turn the iron off? Whatever it was, let's be honest, you were probably left with very clear instructions on what to do and no sooner had you been given the instructions, you forgot them. You were living in the wrong and you had absolutely no idea until you saw the dreaded missed calls. For us to understand exactly what is going on in the letter of Galatians, we kind of need to know how and why Paul is writing to the church there. He's not just frustrated, he's actually pretty mad. To really get the tone of Galatians, it almost needs to be yelled at you. One way that we kind of see this is, so these New Testament letters were written generally by a scribe. Paul would have been speaking and, and someone wrote down what he was saying. But at the end of Galatians in chapter 6 from verse 11, Paul gets up from where he's sitting, he yanks the pen out of the scribe's hand and he writes the end himself in big letters. The Galatians have messed up and Paul wants them to know it. Throughout this letter, he really wants the people to pick up what he's putting down. It's something that we in Portadown hundreds of years later often need to be reminded of as well. The gospel is sufficient. Paul previously had brought the message of Christ's life, death, and resurrection to the church there. The people in Galatia, that's the place to where this letter was being written, they knew of Jesus. They knew of his sacrifice for his people, and they knew what this all meant. They had been told that as God's people, because of what Christ accomplished on Calvary, they no longer needed to live under the Old Testament law, but instead live by the Spirit of God. The people didn't need to follow these old rituals and practices because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Instead, they were to live faithfully by his teachings and what the apostles taught. And that's what you and I believe today. It's what's written in the Bible. However, some shifty characters had been coming into the church and saying, Actually, 
You shouldn't just live like this. You should actually be doing this and this as well. The church was being told and believing that yes, the Spirit of God is real. And yes, Jesus accomplished what he came to do, but that's just not enough. So the message that Paul brought kind of went out the window. And the church in Galatia started to follow some sort of weird mixture between the gospel and the old Jewish laws. Just like the example with the missed calls, the Galatians were told something. And over time, they forgot it. And they ended up getting it horribly wrong. Throughout this whole letter, the message is clear. Don't forget it. Don't add to it. Believe it. It applies as clearly now as it did hundreds of years ago. The gospel is sufficient. There are two real big aspects to this part of the letter. And we'll call these vices of virtues. And I will admit, Scott called me out in this last week. I did kind of borrow that from somewhere. Um, Desiring God. Quite a lovely wee podcast, but that was the title and I couldn't think of anything better. What naturally grips our hearts are the vices. It's what we're, it's what we're just by nature. And then below that is the virtues. These are what we are to look and strive towards as Christians. Firstly, we'll look at the vices. It says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. These vices are described as works of the flesh. Now what does that mean? These come about as desires of the flesh. But what are those? See, what Paul isn't saying here is that inherently our bodies are evil and sinful and utterly against God. That just can't be the case. God took on flesh as Jesus, as we know. And and in Hebrews 4, it tells us that Jesus never sinned. And we see by his life that he never sinned. Jesus was both fully God and fully man. But like us, he did face temptations. That's the desires of the flesh. And when we give in to these and rebel against God, we live for our own passions, desires and wants, that's the works of the flesh. The desire is the temptation and the works is actually doing it. Verse 17 paints an internal battle that as Christians is fought every day. It says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. So picture the scene. You're looking on a boxing ring. In one corner is our fallen bodies, corrupted to want only one thing, and that is sin. On the other side of the ring, or in another corner, is the Holy Spirit that dwells within each and every child of God, spurring us on and giving us the strength that only he can provide, and that's to live a life of glorifying the King of Kings. These two sides are completely opposed to each other in every way. Sometimes, as we all know, the desires of the flesh seem to edge ahead in this fight. Sin happens. Our rejections of God, no matter how big or how small we think they are, are still rejections. We can read from we can read that list again from Galatians 5 that Paul mentions. And I don't need to explain everything in this list to you. But I can say with complete certainty that for myself, and if I asked you as well, to put yourself into at least three of these categories... You could do it without even really thinking. We sin day and daily. Jesus faced these same temptations that we do, but he never gave in. The internal battle for him was the same as it is for you and me. 
But we give in to sin and we will continue to. So what's the consequence of our sin? I've jumped my head. Never mind. So what's the consequence of our sin? It's death. I warn you as I warned you before, Paul says. There we go. That those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Throughout the Bible, God is shown to be a covenantal God. So basically what this means is that he makes promises or commandments. And if we follow these, there are blessings. If we break the commandments without repenting, there are curses or punishments. One really obvious place that we can see this is with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, way at the start of the Bible, back in Genesis. Most of us here will know the story where um, Adam and Eve are told that they can eat from any tree that they want in the Bible except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If Adam and Eve obey this command, they live in unbroken fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden. And if they break it, they die. Most of us here know what happened next, and if you don't, spoiler alert, they broke it. And God cast them out of the garden to die. They were cursed by death, just as God had promised. Sin and death entered the world. A divide was created between the Creator and His creations. God kept His word. He kept His covenant. We usually like to think of God as never breaking His promises, only as a good thing. And it is. But we often forget that that means our sin must be punished. That list that we read out from verses 19 and 20, if you're not in Christ, your name is under it. We're impure, idolatrous, envious, divisive, jealous, angry, sinful, broken, rebellious people. So what happens when we die, when we pass from this world into eternity? What does that look like? God made a covenant. He made a promise. And because we've broken it, we deserve the curse that comes along with it. If you live by the desires and works of the flesh, giving in to temptations, the curse is that you're not his child. And you will not have an inheritance in heaven. And you will go to hell. We can't shy away from that. It's a frightening reality. Hell isn't just a place filled with fire and a big red devil who pokes you with a large fork for all of eternity. It's unending, unbreakable, unredeemable separation from the loving, glorious, all-powerful creator of the universe. It's everything that you and I were not made for. It's the darkest, most isolating death that we can imagine and so much worse. We can't escape it. We can't avoid it and we can't fix it. As with those who followed the law in the Old Testament, the pressure is on the person, it's on you. If you think that you can box tick your way out of separation from God, you won't. If you think you can go to church or CE or YF or PCSU or expression enough times, talk about enough spiritual things, live the right way for long enough, or even help out and organize Christian things and slip into heaven on your own merit without true and genuine repentance, you won't. Not now. Not ever. So what can be done? Whether you're trying to pull these vices off of your own heart, on your own strength, 
or just letting them take a tighter grip on your life, there's only one way that it can be broken. These vices are sins they need to be punished. Either you and I rightfully face the wrath of the Creator of the universe for all of the times that we've sinned, or we look to the cross. As I said with God, His covenants have blessings and curses. For anyone to receive the blessings of God, a sacrifice had to be made. God loves his people and he wants them to live life as it was made to be lived. And that is in fellowship with him. As in the Old Testament, a perfect lamb was sacrificed by the priest to make right the sins of all of the people for breaking the law. And the same had to be done for us. It couldn't just be any sacrifice. But a perfect and blameless sacrifice had to be made. Jesus the Christ, the only person in all of history who never sinned, was that sacrifice. He hung on the cross, bleeding, broken, and dying for you and me. He reached back to the past and forward into eternity, bearing the guilt and weight of every sin that his children have ever committed at once. He took the punishment and he paid the price making a way for us to receive the ultimate blessing. The very thing that we were made for. An everlasting life with God. If you put your faith in Jesus, daily asking him to take the burden and the punishments of the sins that you've committed, he will do it. If you cry out to the Holy God for forgiveness, he will give it. You will be brought in as one of his children, you will inherit the kingdom of God. The curse of sin and death over you is broken forever and this can never be taken away if you are truly in Christ. God never breaks his promises. We don't live a life of making sure that we're doing the right things. We live a life guided by the Spirit of God who dwells in us when we become one of his children. The gospel is sufficient. And the fight between the spirit and flesh that I talked about earlier, Paul reminds us of the winner. As clearly as he said at the start of Romans 8, whenever he said there's no condemnation in Christ, he says in verse 18, but you are led by the spirit. Before Paul even tells us the works of the flesh, he wants to remind the readers of this one amazing everlasting truth. If you're in Christ, you're no longer under the punishment and the pressure of the law, but under the promise of the Holy Spirit. A promise that was made before the foundation of the world. A promise that can never be broken and is set aside for God's people alone. A promise of life everlasting in the glory and majesty of the living God. There's no grey area with this. There's no, I'll be a Christian here, and I'll do good things here, and, and I'll go to the right... I'll go to the right places. I'll say the right things, but I'll not be a Christian over there. I'll live how I want to live and, and kind of balance it out. The flesh under the law pulls your eyes down to your own performance, but freedom under the Spirit lifts our eyes to Christ and what he's accomplished to justify his people. It's black and white. Living a life guided by the Spirit of God in fellowship with the Father daily will defeat the desires of the flesh. The fight will begin to swing in favor of those who are in God's corner. It's not because of us. 
It's not because of anything that we think that we can do. It's only because of Christ and the Holy Spirit. The gospel is sufficient. So what now? If you've put your faith in Christ and his sacrifice, you've been saved from death and hell, but what are you saved to? The answer is obvious. You're saved to life. But what does this life look like? How do we know that we've been saved? So last Saturday in work, I was absolutely famished. The day had admittedly been very quiet, but my wildly rumbly tummy was echoing up all of Portadown High Street. I thought about Greg's, but probably not. I thought about Subway, but it's just too expensive. So I decided to tramp from Cordner's down to Tesco. And I got myself one of their meal deals, a wee sandwich, bottle of water, and because New Year knew me, I decided to go help me. So I made the slowest, most reluctant beeline to the fruit aisle, took a quick scan of the punnets in front of me, and there it was, a big, delicious, red-looking, pink lady apple. And so without thinking any more, I lifted it, plopped it straight into one of those wee polythene bags that take about five minutes to open, and went to the checkout. I paid for my lunch, and I walked straight back to Cordner's. By the time I'd reached Iceland Car Park, I had basically inhaled the sandwich, necked the bottle of the water, and was ready to move on to my fruity, crunchy dessert. I took my apple out of the bag, and before I took a bite, I hesitated because something felt a wee bit weird. I inspected the apple and found a big, brown, squishy bruise on one side that I had completely missed in the shop. I couldn't eat it. I had to throw the apple in the bin. It looked brilliant in Tesco at first glance. Big, round, red, shiny. But when I actually took a look, it was rotten. It was useless. Mark chapter 11 talks about Jesus walking to Jerusalem with his disciples when he spots a fig tree. From a distance, he and the disciples said, It looks class because this is a place that we can grab a bit of food, have a bit of a rest, take a bit of shelter. But as they got closer, this fig tree had no figs on it at all. Despite giving the appearance of a good, fruitful tree from a distance, it was actually useless. Because it, it failed to fulfill its one and only purpose. And so Jesus cursed the tree and it withered and died. If we're in Christ, if we're heirs to inherit the kingdom of God, our lives will look like we're one of his children. Living by the law, living in a way where you think you're doing the right things and looking good to everyone else, will make us essentially like either the apple for my story or the fig tree in Mark 11. You may think you look good, look like the real deal from the outside, but on closer inspection you realize that your core is rotten. You're fulfilling no purpose. Just like the tree in the second story, it leads to death. Living by the Spirit is a life of what some people talk of as showing fruit. But what does that mean? This is where we get to see the virtues that are written about. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. This passage shows us what our life will look like 
if we live by the Spirit of God and not by the desires of the flesh. This is the true characteristic that is shown by anyone who is a child of God. Someone whose sins have been paid for by Jesus and will receive the covenant blessing that we talked about earlier. And that's eternal life with God in heaven. And there are two big takeaway messages from this part of Galatians. Firstly, there's only one fruit. We often think of the things mentioned in the, on the screen just before as, as the fruits of the Spirit, as in more than one. But that isn't actually the case. Each virtue and characteristic listed isn't some sort of individual ingredient in this weird holy fruit salad, all of which comes together in the perfect amount to make what we would call a Christian. There's one fruit, and it is a life of showing all of those characteristics. Yes, going through each one makes for a good series of talks, but I think you miss something so much deeper and much more beautiful if you think of each word mentioned behind me previously as an individual thing. When we think of these verses as talking about one fruit, we should see that if we are a child of God, everything mentioned as this fruit should be exhibited at once. That means that as Christians, we shouldn't talk about us only showing love or showing more peace or showing more gentleness. Instead, because this is one fruit, we should show loving joy, loving peace, loving kindness. We should show peaceful love, peaceful joy, peaceful kindness, and so on. I think you get the picture. Our life as a whole should at all times and in all situations reflect the whole of the fruit of the Spirit at once. And when we see that the fruit we're showing is not the fruit of the Spirit, but is actually rotten and it's going off, it's only through prayer. It's only through spending time getting to know God in his Bible. It is only through relying on the Holy Spirit to work within us and shape us and mold us that we can be more like Christ to show this to the world. We ask him to give us the strength to continue to live a life showing Jesus' character, to give all glory to God alone. This is not something we're able to do by trying harder. Because of the sin you and I commit, there's no way we're able to live well in a way that looks kind and looks patient and all the other things before. While you may fool people around you, your friends, people in your church, or even yourself, when Jesus comes to judge us, he can tell. Just like the fig tree looked like it had good fruit and looked like it was fulfilling its purpose, ultimately, it wasn't. It was useless. And while it fooled others, Jesus saw straight through it. But will he see straight through you? Knowing what the fruit of the Spirit means and where it comes from, where are we able to see this lived out most clearly? And the answer is easy. It's whenever we look at Jesus. The second thing that Paul wants us to grasp is what happens to our sin whenever we come to Christ. The punishment of our sin is put to death forever. In verse 24 and 25 he says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. As we look together, Jesus was crucified and died as the perfect sacrifice 
paying the punishment for the sins of his children. The cross only ever has been and only ever will be a symbol of pain and suffering and death. So where is the encouragement in that? We only see the joy in this gloomy picture whenever we realize what Paul actually is telling the readers. He's basically saying in these verses, if you Galatians are actually living by the Spirit, relying on his strength daily, seeking forgiveness daily, the sinful, corrupted flesh that burdens you and tempts you has been nailed to the cross with Christ, and it has been put to death forever. No longer does the guilt hang in you. No longer do you need to worry about facing the punishment for your sin. The price has been paid and God has won. And that is the same for me today. And it is the same for you today. But only if you're in Christ. There's nothing that we need to add to this. The gospel is sufficient. As the church of Christ, Paul's encourages, or Paul encourages us, to really put into action what we would claim to be. As Christians, we're to journey through life in fellowship with other Christians and in fellowship with God. We're to put the desires of the flesh to death through the power of the Holy Spirit given to us only through Christ. We have to take our eyes off our own performance in box ticking and rely on God for all the strength we so desperately need to give him the glory that he so rightfully deserves. It's the strength to get us through this life, ready to receive the inheritance that's left for each and every one of God's children, the salvation of their souls. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Don't think that you can do it by yourself or just fake it till you make it. Don't forget it. The gospel is sufficient.